0: We are at CNU thirty one in Charlotte. Got uh, Allie Quinlan here with me today. Allie, how you doing this morning?
1: I'm good. How are you, Kevin? I'm
0: all right. I'm barely awake, but I'm I'm doing okay.
1: Same day three of this conference is always, uh, you know, we're we're all starting to fade a little.
0: Yeah, I know. It's the way it goes. It's like too many too many days in Las Vegas or something. That's it's exactly like, right. You hit like forty eight hours, and that's just about enough to to go home. That's right. Um, I wanted to have uh, you on, Allie, uh, because I think you've got a really great, interesting story. I love the stuff that you're doing. Uh, and I'd like for more people to get to know you and, and you know, what, what all you're up to. Mm -hmm. So I know, uh, your professional background is architecture, uh, originally, but you're now a, uh, Would it it be fair to say you're like a full-time developer too or like part-time developer?
1: No, you know, so I run three different companies. So I have um, Flintlock Limited, which we often market as Flintlock Lab, which is landscape architecture building. Um, So I'm a a licensed architect. Um, I did a five-year degree first. I did a two-year post-professional landscape degree um, after I graduated in 2008 and Mm -hmm. there were no no jobs available. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I also had seeing all of the architects that i had met where they wore a lot of black and they were pretty depressed and they had really bad Home lives, and they were just, you know, a depressing crew. And yeah. all of the landscape architects that I knew were like out hiking at 4 p.m. and had, you know, these really rich social lives and seemed really happy with their professional lives. And mm-hmm. so I think that was a thing that, too. Kind of midway through architecture school, um, I was like, I don't know what the difference is, but one of these groups seems much happier than the other one. <laughs> I should, I, I should get more of that. Um, so licensed as both. And a lot of my work is really um, a lot of my design work, um, kind of that, that primary. All of my payroll is, is through the design practice. Um, most of our income is from the, the design mm-hmm. practice. Um, and most of our work is, you know, I live in a really topographic Region, mm-hmm. So I'm in Northwest Arkansas. Um, we are in the Boston mountains and, you know, a lot of our undeveloped sites, you know, have a 15 to 20% cross grade mm-hmm. and quite a bit of tree cover. Mm-hmm. And so working in that kind of region, being both a landscape architect and an architect, being able to do site planning and mitigation and master planning that really is based around, what do we need the land to make up and what do we need the architecture to make up and Mm -hmm. how do those two really work together pretty seamlessly um, has been really the core of our work. So I have a team of eight um, with that crew and then I have a, um, development company called Flintlock Development, and I bought an acre and a half downtown mm-hmm. um, in 2016 in Fayetteville. Was that and, was that
0: your first effort at trying to do development when you bought the acre and a half? Or? Um,
1: you know, I sometimes say that I started really early at mm-hmm. um, you know IncDev. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a senior faculty member. Mm-hmm. I am a board member now. A, I am a passionate IncDev uh, Alliance member, and we often say start small, right? Start start with that house flip. start with the duplex. And so in that sense, I um, started development when I was 16. Mm. Um, I went to college when I was 16 at OU. Hmm. I was too le- young to live in the dorms. And so bought a house with my sister, another architecture
2: student.
1: Hmm. And we, it was terrifying when we bought it. Mm -hmm. And so we rehabbed it the entire time we lived, lived there, you know, through architecture school and then sold it when we moved. And that was the seed money that then I bought and, you know, flipped houses that I lived in, uh, kind of 16 through 25. How, How
0: many, how many houses did you live in and flip?
1: Uh, I lived in rentals for a while in DC while I was living in DC. So I think three and then, um, bought my first investment. A house flip when I was 25 mm-hmm. and then sold it and started my design practice with hmm. with that. And so it was the first big scale South street, um, is the acre and a half downtown.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, is, it's a kind of weird trapezoidal site that has an alley along one side and it's got, you know, 20, 30 feet of drop from one corner to the other. Um, it's a, it's a pretty, uh, gnarly site in some ways, but the location is great. Um, And so did, you know, it was the first time I'd really done full entitlement and land development and infrastructure Mm -hmm. and negotiating sewer line installs and cost shares with the city and really digging into much more traditional infill development Mm -hmm. checklist.
0: So let's talk a little bit about like that first project, because I think it's really I always think it's interesting for people to understand like how to get started, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I think for so many people who are interested in um, small scale development, Mm -hmm. whether they're an architect or not, or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever background you come from, it just seems like uh, it can be daunting for people to take that first step. So how did you, how did you like identify the site? How did you, how did you figure out that this was something you wanted to do? Or how did you figure out that this particular site was something you wanted to do? And then, then what happened, you know, after that kind of walk me through it.
1: Um, That was really luck. And in retrospect, I wouldn't recommend that anyone make the jump that I did between, (laughs) you know, individual houses. I I got into architecture because I love historic preservation. Mm. Um, That's the the third company is a general contracting company that Mm. does historic preservation work. And I I just love that. You know, we will Mm -hmm. buy really undervalued and kind of at risk historic properties, um, renovate them and then generally sell them. Although we have a couple that we, you know, we have put tenants in and, and kept. Um, and the jump from that to like land development and mass grading and, mm-hmm. you know, utility mm-hmm. negotiations was, was really too big. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been fine. And, you know, it, it's gone well. And also, um, you know, from a, you know, brain damage standpoint, and, and just the amount of time that it has taken to work through that project. Um, for sure, something smaller and simpler would have been the right middle step. Yeah. Um, you know, we went kind of A to D. Yeah. Instead, B and C would have been good steps, <laughs> And so, I think the B and C that would have been easier is uh, probably buying a property and then adding, you know, buying a property that was rented and cash flowing and then adding some small units to the back
2: uh-huh. would
1: have been a better way to just bite off handling yeah. new construction with a builder
2: Yeah,
1: and buying a single lot that needed a little infrastructure mm-hmm. and putting a couple of units on it and then selling it would have been probably that next step of, mm-hmm. okay, now let's add a little flavor of land development mm-hmm. um, with the new construction experience that now that we've gotten and hopefully a builder mm-hmm. crew that we, we've gotten and liked. Um, I've also kind of in the meantime, done a couple of commercial buildings. Um, one of them with a partner and that is the, the sweet spot that I have more gotten into with development work is being much more patient. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that's the benefit of not, you know, almost all the small developers that InkDev works with aren't doing it full time. It's at the beginning, it is not a full-time gig. Um, and so having a W2 job and, being able to be patient and kind of have your equity together to be able to jump on a deal when it comes, but then, you know, doing deals that have a lot of equity in them already just because you're getting a really good deal, mm-hmm. I think is for sure the way to get started. You know, mm-hmm. don't, I think I probably was, I was actually negotiating on the next door property to South mm-hmm. Street for several months and just wasn't making any headway with the owner and was down there for a meeting and the neighbor next door was putting a sign up and I walked up and shook a hand and, you know, mm-hmm. bought it a couple of weeks later. Hmm. And so it was more just luck and, uh, happenstance. So it was not strategy. I don't want to mislead you. That well, this was no, some real str- strategic. Move. I know,
0: you know, and, and we can overdo it and overthink it when it comes to strategy too. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you just have to strike when you know when the opportunity comes. So, yeah. um, with that deal, so did you have like partners or investors or something that helped you through that deal, or how did how did you find help on that?
1: Um, so I have one investor in that that project, which mm-hmm. is my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother had just died and left her a little bit of money. And so she invested that in that first land purchase, mm-hmm. um, as a, cause I always think these nuts and bolts are helpful because there's a yeah. hundred ways to structure that. Yeah. Um, we decided that, you know, because of the family connection and we wanted Thanksgiving to be okay, that it was going to be better to structure that just as a personal loan. So, it, you know, it's an unsecured personal loan with interest that accrues basically as she asks for Asks for it, You know, mm-hmm. the interest is accruing. It, it's not paid regularly, though. Mm-hmm. And it, that way, it, you know, it's, it's a personal loan that's short of bankruptcy. I'm always going to owe her. Right. Should the project have gone south, her investment was not actually in the project. I was taking on the risk of the project and saying, I will pay this money back, whether it's from profit from this project mm-hmm. or not.
0: Did you did you do like a written contract with oh, your mom Oh yeah, that? we have
1: a promissory note that is <laughs> That's notarized good. That's good. and filed yeah. and it shows up on my, you know, yeah. bank, you know, personal financial statements every year uh-huh. and um
0: Do you recommend that to other people like for who are doing friends and family raises? I us. mean,
1: I think that the more I, I mean just generally as a uh life strategy. I think that the more on paper we can have things, the less fuzziness there is. I think often, Mm -hmm. you know, disagreements about money and timelines and, you know, all of that stuff comes from both parties having really different ideas of what's going to happen. And so I think the more that it's on paper and we both signed it, the more that we're at least saying we do both agree to this specific thing. Mm -hmm. And any other understandings that we have about this, you know, aren't actually the agreement. So yes, I think going overkill on paperwork and communication and record keeping Mm -hmm. is only good for relationships. Mm -hmm. So that you, you know, you avoid any, well, I I thought this is what we were saying, Mm -hmm. you know, five years down the line.
0: You know, one thing I didn't ask you was like, how did you end up uh, in Fayetteville, were you were you from Fayetteville originally, or did
1: no? I grew up on a big cattle ranch in western Oklahoma. Okay. Um, my family was in the land run in the uh-huh. 1890s and um, has been out in western Oklahoma since then. So I grew up out in an incredibly rural place. Uh-huh. Um, you know, my my school was Roger Mills County for the Oklahomans out there. <laughs> um, my school was kindergarten through 12th grade in one building, probably 200 students. Yeah, and so you know. Classes of like five and ten yeah. people um, per per grade, and went to University of Oklahoma for undergrad. Went to Virginia Tech's urban campus um, for landscape degree. So I was in D.C. and met my kid's dad, and mm-hmm. he had switched to a domestic job. Um, he had been working overseas. Um, out of DC, switched to a domestic job when we got married. And mm-hmm. so the first office that they posted to was Fayetteville.
2: Oh, wow. So okay.
1: total fluke. We thought we were going to Seattle or LA. Uh-huh. Total fluke that we ended up in Fayetteville. And, you know, a real gift in a lot of ways because the market there, I would never have been able to have this kind of business in any other market. Yeah. And there's just a lot of luck in, you know, our housing costs since I have moved there have increased 120%. Mm-hmm. And so putting money into the market in real estate when I moved there has been a total luck gift.
0: Yeah. But obviously you were, um, you weren't like reluctant to just dive right in because you, no, sounds, that's not my personality. Yeah. So, I mean, you moved to a new place where you probably didn't really
2: no, I didn't have any relationships at
0: all. No, yeah, I and, I knew no one. and pretty quickly jumped in and, and, and you've made that, um, a place for you to, to work.
1: Um, You know, I I knew one person in Arkansas, and um, that was Steve Loney, who runs the um, University of Arkansas Community Design Center, had done some lectures and workshops when I was an undergrad in Oklahoma. And so I knew him, you know, we spent a couple of days together years before. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to him and asked if we could have coffee and if he would make some recommendations about wh- where should I apply for a job? You know, we, we found out six weeks before we were moving that we were going there. So
2: hmm. I
1: met with Steve when, when we got there and we're getting unpacked. Um, and he was hiring at the time and offered me a position with the community design center that was some of the most fun work that I've ever done. And like, the most award-winning. I was there for less than a year and I think, you know, have like eight national awards from that time. Oh, wow. And also, I was making $30,000 a year with no benefits, Mm -hmm. you know, with a master's degree and one license. So, (laughs) you know, pros and cons. Yeah. Um, But made, made... some really helpful sort of connections in terms of starting to get into the design Uh group in, in Fayetteville, which is a really, there's a lot of architects per capita there. And so just starting to um, figure out the lay of the land. And then I, my next job there was actually um, what most of the design crew there would have considered career suicide, but was a relatively strategic move. Um, I needed internship hours for both an architectural license and a landscape license, and you can't double count them. And Mm. so I had my architecture hours done, but I needed to work underneath a licensed landscape architect. I think I had maybe a couple of hours left for architecture. Um, I couldn't find anybody to work underneath that I could get my internship hours, except there was this weird little office of you know, architectural management is what it was called Mm -hmm. for um, a regional bank that's owned by the Waltons. And so they're in four states and they had an internal office that did all of their new branches, prototype design, um, you know, site design, they helped with property acquisition um, and then renovation. The bank grew via um, acquisition of other banks. Mm -hmm. And so, but if you're not familiar with this banking process, those kinds of acquisitions are always completely secret up until the day of closing. And then you have a really short time window in which the branch has to be completely rebranded and all the signage has to be totally updated. It's, it's like mm-hmm. 60 days, I think. Yeah. And so we would suddenly receive a package of 60 buildings that we had not previously seen that in the next 60 days, all of them need to be rebranded and painted <laughs> in a four state wow. area. Jeez. So you know, I, I through that office was managing eighteen million dollars in construction a year. I was on site every job site every week, and so I was traveling an enormous amount and and working with just this incredibly high volume of builders in different markets, and doing a huge amount of contract negotiation and negotiating contracts with architects and acting as the owner in development essentially, and so the it was helpful from a licensing standpoint. I quit that job the day that I got, you know, my, my second license. Um, and also it, in retrospect, that finance and contract and, you know, sort of project management experience was fabulous. Yeah. Although the, the architecture was mind numbingly bad. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. it was use it was useful in that it was a set of sort of business skills. I think I run a good business more than I am a good architect. And there's a there's a place for that right
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so the the more that I understood the business of how buildings are made and development happens the I mean that's been the even that's even the reason that we're good designers is yeah. we know how things are financed we can structure our contracts we can structure designs and entitlement around the way banking works and the kind of financial product that's going to be used to finance it and you know can produce quite a bit of upfront work for someone to be able to get an appraisal, which means they don't have construction financing yet, which means everything they're paying us is just coming out of their pocket. Yeah. So just really being in tune and um, not fighting against the reality of how buildings are made has been, I think, probably the core success of the business.
0: Yeah. It's kind of, it's funny <coughs> in retrospect, because I, I had almost sort of the opposite mm-hmm. situation, you know, as an architect, I always felt like I was probably much better at the, design side of things than the business side. It was okay at the business side. But, you know, when when back when I had my firm in the 2000s, you know, we we were just a couple of guys who didn't know anything about running a business. We had to, like, go take classes on how to read a financial statement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, we you know, we had no idea. And it just felt like it, it's really, it's just funny in architecture, there's so little preparation for oh, that. Yeah. Um, even oh, yeah. though so many architects like you, like me, mm-hmm. end up, hanging up, you know, hanging up a shingle and, mm-hmm. and going out on their own. There's just like incredibly little thought about preparation mm-hmm. for, you know, exactly what you talk about. How does finance work? How do, how do buildings get built?
1: Yeah. How um, do I run this business? How does my tax structure work? Am yeah. I going to be an LLC that's taxed as an S corp or actually do I want to be a C corp or am I a sole proprietor? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think I was lucky also in that instance, I share. <clears throat> so the first year that I um, opened up my own practice, I had a real, dedication to running a fully cash-based business. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have any debt on the business at all um, because I knew how risky that was going to be. And so it was the most lean startup that I could do, right? I didn't get fancy new computers. Mm -hmm. I didn't get a fancy new office space. I didn't get great new software. I did the, the most that I could with a real focus on ROI, And so one of those things is I had um, a good friend who was running an e-commerce business in a really cool building in Fayetteville. And it was like a 10,000 square foot building and they had a team of like 15. And so Mm. there were just a lot of empty corners in the building. And so I asked him if I could co-office and, you know, in exchange for kind of helping uh, with the management and maintenance of this big old building, knowing who to call and when to call someone and, you know, that we needed to winterize something. Yeah. I had free rent for a year and I got to sort of hang out with them. And they had a finance person um, who went out on their own, had been a CPA. Um, It's another woman who had little kids and wanted to have more flexibility. So she started working from home doing bookkeeping and so was lucky to kind of have that connection of from day one having a third party who was, you know, meeting with me monthly, going over books, providing full financial statements that the bank, you know, the banks loved. That it was mm-hmm. this super professional, even though it was this tiny little business. Um, really organized. She set up all the systems that we still use now, and so we really started the way that I meant to go on, which was super organized, cash based, um, and as little overhead as possible to provide as much flexibility and resiliency to the business as possible.
0: Um, so when you, when you started out, like who, who did you, when you started out on the architecture side mm-hmm. and having your business, who were, who were your first clients? How did you go about finding them? Cause I think that, I mean, I think it's also fascinating that you have both of these interests in like historic rehab and mm-hmm. you're thinking about house flips, but you're also starting an architecture and landscape architecture mm-hmm. business. So mm-hmm. how did you go find clients for that?
1: Um, you know, entertainingly, I had clients lined up before I left, and several of the clients were um, bank branch property managers <laughs> who I'd been working on their projects. Let them know I was leaving, and they just hired me as a fee consultant to keep doing the same thing that I had been doing on the projects. Huh. And so that was a that was a helpful switch. Um, I, had a, I had two custom homes lined up before I left. You know, mm-hmm. I, I did. I, I had done the kind of business management, business development before I left, so I had probably three months of work lined up um, Mm -hmm. when I left. And so my first year was pretty profitable Mm -hmm. um, because I have always had a real dedication to, there's only, you know, I keep pretty strong metrics on how billable I am and, you know, how much volunteer Mm -hmm. work I can do and how much research work I can do. And like me sitting and reading a book at the office is not work. Mm -hmm. And so I can read it at home at night, but like, you know, <laughs> if I'm at the office, I am doing billable client work or actively out negotiating new work. Yeah. And so um, that's something that I think helped upfront, just being really disciplined about would someone else pay me to be doing the thing that I'm doing right now? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then I need to do it after hours.
0: Uh, it feels like a really unusual set of qualities, you know, especially in an architect, <laughs> yes, you know? Yes. Um, Again, I've never been a very good architect. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating.
1: I'm a, I'm a very reluctant architect. Let me put it
0: that way. <laughs> so then, you know, as that evolved, like what's the kind of work then that the architecture and landscape architecture firms mm-hmm. do? Uh, like what kind, of, what kind of clients do you have?
1: Um, you know, I really wanted to be doing more landscape architecture. And when I first started, there just wasn't that much landscape architecture in our region. Just mm-hmm. generally people weren't spending money on that. And there were not big regional projects. There were not big civic projects. There were a decent amount of landscape architects and all of them, none of them had enough work. And so that was a real benefit to me in having, having both abilities It was being able to jump into um, what the market had right then. And um, so I, I had worked in multifamily in DC. Um, that's my background was I'd worked for a multifamily, my My first job back after grad school, um, I worked odd jobs and, uh, I actually was a personal trainer for a few years and because, you know, again, that, that was what there was available that was paying money in DC. Um, and my first job back was with a personal training client who was an architect. He convinced his firm to hire me, Mm -hmm. um, because he'd seen me up at 5am every day and, you know, thought that I was disciplined and could communicate well. And, and so I laid out, um, really dense apartment, like interior layouts. And I think learned skills from laying out apartments all day, every day, um, that has directly translated into all the small format housing that I do now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the structure, and then I transitioned from working for the, that multifamily architecture firm to working for the landscape architect that primarily did the multifamily site layouts and landscape design. And so Mm -hmm. I was working on the same buildings inside, outside, And that's really what the the practice is now. I would say, Mm -hmm. you know, 20% of our work, but a big chunk of our income is master planning. And Hmm. so we, we often receive a site from a client that a civil engineer has laid out and they don't like it. And so it's helpful that we can then track those metrics of we generally get about a 40% increase in density, which either means we're building on 40% of the site because they have a cap of units that they want to do. Yeah. And we're doing you know some sort of conservation or ecological um, you know management and design of the other portion, or we're saving it for future development, or we're adding 30 to 40% more units.
2: Yeah.
1: And so... Most of my practice is Tetris and we're so good at Tetris. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we can generally track about a fifteen to twenty percent reduction in infrastructure lengths and about a thirty to forty percent increase in efficiency of development. And so, you know, we're paying for ourselves. So what we charge is sort of meaningless.
0: Do you try to do you, do you try to capture or monetize that benefit to the client? You know, in, we in always measure
1: and track it and yeah no we have, we have a per acre um, sort of metric is how we price that okay. generally but almost all of our business is repeat business because once one of our de- yeah. you know once a developer has worked with us on a big project like that and they have seen the efficiency yeah. it, we don't have to sell that yeah. um they they see that throughout the project and yeah. so we do a lot of master planning which then we're also selling the architecture with right um, we do a lot of stock plan architecture. So I've got probably ten floor plans that you know we've we've just built a number of times, and we know they work for a really specific slice of the demographic. And they're each really different dimensions and hit a really different market segment. And so we'll do master plans with developers existing product we do master plans with our stock plans which then lets us just give them a spreadsheet of what plans they're paying reuse fees on and your mm-hmm. architecture is ready yeah here's your master plan and also your architecture is done yeah. um, and then we do we do a number of you know more traditional architecture for me things we've done yeah. a couple of restaurants always in cool downtown building rehabs um, we do some landscape architecture for multifamily and for commercial projects. We did a really cool grocery store rehab that, that showed up in one of the presentations yesterday. Um, still do historic preservation, mm-hmm. although it's, ha- it's hard if we don't own the building to make the amount of time that it takes us mm-hmm. to do a historic preservation project pencil for a client. Yeah. Um, and then we'd work with a lot of infill developers. So, you know, it's the same concept as the big master plan with architecture, but we'll be taking You know, sometimes a 50 by 150 lot, sometimes up to, you know, half an acre or an acre and really saying, what's the code hack that we can meet your goals in a way that you can finance in a way that you have equity for right now. And so we sometimes run pro formas for people and, you know, we'll help walk them through that. What are the limiting factors on this project for you right now? And how do we design a project that you can build?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Feel like I've got a ton of questions because you know it's funny that like the work that you're doing is so similar, in a lot of ways, to the work my my old for, firm used to do. And so one of the questions, like, so you have your own stock plans, mm-hmm. uh, and then you also uh, have these plans that you have built for yourself for your uh, development deals. Mm-hmm. Um, do they ever mingle? Do you take? Oh one, yeah. Yeah. And how, do, and how do the clients kind of deal with like you might be borrowing plans back and forth between them or other clients?
1: It's in our upfront contract. Um, it's all, we have a really open pricing structure in our contracts. So a new custom plan has a flat fee. If you want it to be an exclusive plan to you, there's a multiplier of cost on mm-hmm. that plan. So you're getting a discount on the upfront new custom plan design that that we're openly saying this can become a stock plan if we decide it should Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um and if you want it to be exclusive here's what that costs and if you want it to be exclusive in the region here's what that costs Mm -hmm. you know um and then a reuse fee of a custom plan that you have had us design is a discounted reuse Mm -hmm. fee a reuse fee of a, a regular stock plan is a it's a fixed fee line item that's in the initial contracts. We often are providing that whole fee structure in master planning proposals just so they can budget for that architecture in the future. And so we have a super open pricing model about how that works. We're very open that, you know, they're going to benefit from being able to use stock plans and then other people get to benefit from using their stock plans unless they say they don't want that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do have a couple of clients that want to have, you know, kind of exclusive rights to their plan so we tend to just be really upfront with clients about it and it's we have a couple handful of people that want really exclusive things or they want something that's so specific that we wouldn't use it anyway okay it's very specific to their business model right. or some specific project um but i think just
0: so i mean has that been do you perceive that as like it's been a big plus the fact that you have developed and built your own things in terms of pitching to other clients or do some of them get turned off as like possible competition or
1: how, how is that it has only been globally positive in yeah. my experience in yeah. terms of, you know, our, our plans are really buildable because I've written the checks for these plants. Mm-hmm. And so I know the thing that costs too much money that I yeah. didn't get any money back out of. Yeah. And so we don't do that anymore. Yeah. And so developing my own work, um, I, I want to say this out loud, has not been super profitable. I've not <laughs> lost money, um, but from a, from an ROI on time, um, it has not been my most productive work. And Flip side of that is it has been phenomenal marketing work,
2: mm-hmm.
1: one, and it has been phenomenal learning experience in terms of nuances that you just wouldn't get into knowing as an architect mm-hmm. if you weren't also the developer and on site every day and knowing some weird detail that we'd drawn that looks like it makes total sense on paper and like we just didn't think through.
0: Yeah. So why, <clears throat> why do you think uh, in retrospect now it hasn't been terribly profitable for you? on the development side?
1: Um, One of the downsides of developing as an architect is having architect's disease, which is wanting good architecture um, ahead of profitability. And so there are, the stuff that I have developed myself is it's just nicer than what most of the clients will build. And, you know, it's not in really big ways, but it Mm -hmm. is, it's the profit margin. I have spent the profit margin on projects on full cedar shingle cladding mm-hmm. and a big round porch with a herringbone deck floor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some pretty cute columns and banquettes inside and really <laughs> nice windows and full tile bathrooms and sand in place, hardwood floors. And I sold the full first phase and then realized that I was not making any money because I was building really nice housing Mm-hmm. and so um, it would be better to just keep the housing because it, it's going to appreciate really well. It's mm-hmm. going to rent really well. That's also something John Anderson told me before I sold that first phase, <laughs> but I had, to, I had to mess it up before I believed him. Yeah, I know. Um, we, have to,
0: we always have to make our own mistakes. We have to make our that. own mistakes. I, yeah. I made
1: exactly the mistake that he was telling me I was going to make, and then it turned out just the way he said it would. Um, and so I've now – I kept one house from the second phase – Um, which has an ADU on it, so two units. And then I kept two houses from the third phase. And so I have four units now on South Street that I kept. And they are, in fact, just the most phenomenal rentals because they're so cute and the materials are nothing else in the market is like that. And they're also so low maintenance because they're really well built. Mm -hmm. And I've actually tried to negotiate with one of my first phase buyers several times to buy their house back from them um, at like 25% more than they bought it from me, Mm. you know. Five years ago,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is actually not that bad a uh, margin as I as I say that now. But I think that's the development work that I do. The primary goal was not making money, mm-hmm. and so as long as I don't lose money, it makes sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But that's a really specific to me right now at this phase in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, each phase has been more profitable. We've really we've we've even. There's a lot of nuance of we can make a a house pencil that is under 700 square feet with one bathroom, that works fine. We can make a house pencil that is 1200 to 1500 square feet, two or three bedrooms, one and a half bathrooms, mm-hmm. no problem. Every one of those that we do works. That that like six maybe 650 really up to 1200 square feet is very hard to make pencil. We have one house that is a thousand square feet and has two beds, two bath, two full bathrooms, and it's the only house that I lost money on. Hmm. The phase itself did fine because one of the other houses made enough money to cover it, but there is a dead spot for us that i wouldn't have known about if i hadn't been developing lots of plans of different sizes and seeing that outsize impact from a price you know they each sell for about the same price per square foot and Mm. so if we add a second bathroom and that's adding you know ten dollars a square foot because it's only a thousand square foot house i can't capture that back in the sale price and so it's it's really helped hone in a lot of the specifics of exactly what we need to provide I'm also then showing and selling these houses and negotiating those contracts through. Mm-hmm. So getting a lot of really good market data of 20 people will come and look at this house and we're getting their feedback specifically on what works, what doesn't, which then helps kind of on a live you know, yeah. design basis, know what people want and what are the deal breakers and what are the sort of surprising things that mm-hmm. makes the house work for them or not.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. God, it's it. We have some similar stories in that regard. It's funny, but I, I <clears throat> designed and built a house, an infill house in Kansas City, Missouri, about two thousand five, and uh, and then I have the bright idea to um, try to do a FISBO and you know mm-hmm. I was going to sell it myself, and mm-hmm. did the open houses and. Uh, I, I've said in retrospect, I feel like every architect should do that mm-hmm. and, because it's very it, it is the most humbling thing humbling. that you ever go through uh-huh. because then you have all these people, you know, come through your house mm-hmm. and you quickly learn like all the mistakes that you
2: made. Yes. Mm-hmm. And,
0: uh, it's, it's remarkable. I ended up buying the house and living in it because, because to be frank, I could not sell it for the price that I needed to get out of it to make to make money on it so i bought it and lived in it and and i enjoyed it you know and um, i eventually uh, added a adu to it and Mm -hmm. and and made my way through it okay but uh i mean it was it was a bit of a painful learning experience uh, but a great learning experience because Mm -hmm. you really there were so many details about laying out a house and thinking about the design of a house that i'd never really deeply thought about Mm -hmm. until until going through all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at your projects going forward, then do you, do you feel like then um, you, you really just want to focus more on rentals or do you want to try to do for sale housing again? Or how, how would you evaluate that?
1: You know, my goal at this point, um, I had to, I switched banks recently, which is a real, you know, I'm a, I'm a very committed person just as a personality type. And so I've been with the same fully banked with the same bank for 10 years. Um, you know, all of the businesses and, recently switched and am in the process currently of switching. And it was entertaining needing to explain to a new banker how the finances of these businesses worked. <laughs> um, and it helped me come to a, a really, I think, accurate, but not a thing I would have said before, which is really the business structure is we make money uh, doing design services for fee mm-hmm. and we put that money into uh, real estate and as an investment. And so rental long-term, you know, is really where, and some of this is also just the phasing of South Street, South Street's 22 units, Um, not 10 of them are done. And I designed it for the first 10 units to be for sale so that then I would make enough money to build Mm -hmm. and keep the other 12 units. Mm -hmm. And so that was a strategic intentional design Which I was not dedicated enough about accounting to actually keep all the money that we made selling houses, you know, in the business Mm -hmm. to then put put into that. But um, yeah, the the way that those last twelve lots will work is it's structured to be um, a rental piece that I keep long term. Mm -hmm. It is like my retirement more or less. But the the thing that's also tricky about that is waiting for that. Here is where that patience comes in, right? You want to have the project ready or the equity ready you want to be able to jump when the timing is right and then you need to be patient like right now is not the moment to build 12 rental units to keep mm-hmm. um, and so i had actually permitted them we we were fully permitted on the 12 townhouses um in 2020 we were permitted and contracted with a builder and preparing to build them and during the pandemic when lumber you know doubled in prices right. it it wasn't the time so it got shelved and now interest rates are so high and so i am hopeful that at some point you know in the next five years that there is that right market time the project is designed we have all the permit plans you know done we'll have to reapply but everything's been kind of worked out and that we can jump on it when the timing is right but i'm in a real new mode of there's no rush on pushing a project through at the wrong time
0: With the, with the work that you've done on commercial properties and commercial rehabs, is that something mm-hmm. you've looked at from on the development side too that you'd be interested in like buying and keeping mm-hmm. commercial buildings?
1: Yeah, that's um, I, the first commercial building that I did was w- again with a partner who's smarter than me about it, so that was really nice. Um, and it's a building that was undervalued by the person selling it effectively enough that we actually didn't have to put any cash in the deal. The building appraised for like 30% more -hmm. than we were, they were asking to sell it for. And so we had a bank locally that was really, you know, they know the neighborhood really well. They knew the building really well. They walked through it. They felt very comfortable that if we defaulted, they could sell it and, you know, probably make some money because we were getting such a good deal on it. And so we didn't put any cash in that deal and rented it. It was leased for two years um and then sold it and Mm. made some nice money on it with no no money in Mm and so that kind of project that is it's an ugly simple basic building it Mm -hmm. is a plain old one-story rectangle with no windows yeah and we added some skylights um and so yes those kinds of i think that's where being an architect can be tricky because it's hard to buy that building and not make it cute yeah and also um there's a huge benefit, yes, in being able to be plugged in enough to know when that stuff is coming up and then being able to do something with it. But the thing about commercial that is um, really different about residential is it's really hinges on the tenant. I mean, you mm-hmm. can do some speculative right. commercial, but right. um, you know, short of having a really good tenant that wants to lease and not buy, um, I... Yeah. commercials just harder. It's a different beast.
0: Yeah. Bernice has had some, some success with it Has she like pushed you to try to do anything that way.
1: She's done such a good job with that. And, yeah. you know, Monty's done a great job with that yeah, in terms exactly. of finding the tenant who has a great idea, doesn't have enough money to buy a building, but would be a good tenant for a couple of years. And then buying something specifically for their business, yeah. um, which I think is a phenomenal way to do that and requires a connectivity in the community and to small business owners that I do not currently have in my life. I yeah. am, uh, I've joked that I'm in my shut-in era. <laughs> um, you know, I uh, i am working a lot as, you know, as, as makes sense. And I had a baby last year during CNU. And so I have a, a one-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, that I'm a single parent to. And so if I'm not at my office, the hours of eight to five, I'm Mm -hmm. home, you know, fully embedded in parenting. And so I think there's a lot of that tenant work that comes from being out in the community, right? It comes from knowing the people who have the cool idea and who are starting the food truck, who hate their job and are super good at making pies in bernice's case right Mm -hmm. and so they open the pie shop um and so i think some of that is there's a season for each one of these things Mm -hmm. um and that kind of commercial i'm not in the season for i'm gonna gonna have to like get out of my house again to find those things
0: i mean They're they're
1: not coming knocking on the door
0: running three businesses and being a single mom that is uh It's
1: a busy season. Um, and also,
0: especially little ones, like a one-year-old. Oh oh, man. They really require a lot.
1: Oh man. Yeah. I've had, I've had both of them solo since the baby was six weeks old and it has, you know, you just didn't sleep and you've heard me complain about this. Um, (laughs) but I think too, the thing that people can think about women in work and little kids is that well, you're, you're working less, and so that's a permanent condition. And one mm-hmm. thing that we, you know, I work with a lot of women. I, um, at one point, had a design co-op that was based around keeping women in the profession through, you know, young childhood years. And the, the biggest takeaway for people really is that that season is so short.
2: Yeah. Like,
1: if we think about this as a sabbatical, right, that we have maybe a five to seven-year window out of probably a 40 to 50 year career with Mm -hmm. less than 10% of our working years that it's just different. And, you know, there's um, a funny thing too that I talk about with, with women who have had kids that the the linguistic part of your brain, there's a really good New York times article on this, the linguistic part of your brain postpartum shrinks by like 30
2: to 40%.
1: And the part of your brain that assesses danger and picks up on nonverbal cues, grows about that same, grows to fill that space in your in your skull. Yeah. And there's about a two year window um, postpartum where it's not useful to you evolutionarily to be focusing a lot on linguistics, and it comes back right that that then right repli- about the time the baby starts talking, that brain matter flips again, which is a cool evolutionary thing and also means it's hard for me to remember words right now. (laughs) I I have a lot of notes when I'm speaking. Um, And the more that we just say out loud what those realities are, the more we can come up with really practical solutions. Cool. I need more childcare right now than I'm ever going to need in the rest of my life. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: This is 10% of my career, you know, in terms of overall years. So you just make the accommodations that work right now to keep you as in the profession as you want to be and lean into accepting and embracing and having fun with this short period. Right. And you know, in one of, one of my kids is going to be in kindergarten next year. Right. And four years from then they'll both be in school Mm -hmm. and it will just be a completely different set of needs. And so that's one thing that I think anybody who, which is hopefully, you know, everybody who is hiring people, everybody who has female employees who are at that age really shifting that thinking around what are the accommodations that we make to make this work right now for this really short time period? And then how wonderful an employee do I have Mm -hmm. for the next how many decades? Um, You know, I think there is that lack of flexibility in architecture specifically, right? That there's not that cyclical thinking, and one of the things that I'm going to say too is the the moms especially of young kids that I know are like the most productive workers on the planet because you have so few hours in the day that are yeah. undistracted work time that you just can't fuck around. Yeah. I mean, you you were at work and you are you were getting it done and then you were jumping right back into
2: yeah.
1: um, you know, a very you know, loud and messy and kind of demanding and physical season. And so I think that's something that we should look at as a strength. And one thing that architecture as a profession, I think that doesn't do well is accepting that we are people, not robots Mm -hmm. and that there's a cyclical nature to all of this. And I think that there's people who have mental health issues and seasons that they go through that like Mm -hmm. they need a different structure and support and set of expectations for a short time period. And the more that we can really talk through how do we help people have what they need in this season to be really productive and to be doing really good work. And then how do we shift that when they need something different?
2: Yeah.
1: Instead of having this, you know, here is a slot, here are the expectations and the needs of this slot. And if you as a cog cannot fit into this slot, then I'll find another cog.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's a, that's just a great way to think about it and it resonates even with me and even as a dad. And I know, you know, obviously have help uh with my wife and and we we went through similar like evaluations like when we had uh, our kids and and she actually kind of quit her job and her career that she was doing when we had our first kid Mm -hmm. uh, to stay home for the first like you know three or four years Mm -hmm. uh, which was not something like we'd originally planned on at all Um, I think she was ready for like a break anyway Mm -hmm. from all of that but we And we were fortunate, you know, I tell the story a lot when I talk to people about house hacking, it's like, Mm -hmm. we were living in a townhouse in Savannah that we owned, uh, that had a carriage house in the back, and the carriage house basically paid the mortgage. And we, and so it was, it was financially easier for us to kind of make that decision to just have one uh, salary. And, um, and then she took, you know, we ended up having two kids, and she took really the first. Four about four years there, and uh, and stayed at home and really mm-hmm. helped usher them through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she reinvented herself and uh, and you know went to a, did coding boot camps and now is like a, a software developer. So mm-hmm. it was it was also a great thing for her. But we had those discussions about we've got this really limited window of time yes. with these little kids. Yes, uh, and and I think even as a dad who I you know I don't have to take care of them all the time, but I I feel what you're saying with you Know, I am way more productive in whatever limited time I have now because yes. you know, evenings and weekends I want to spend
1: with yeah. the kids. I, I can't, if I know. goof off and go take two hours at lunch with yeah. a client that I'm sort of arguing as well, <laughs> but then I have two hours of work I need to do tonight, like that's not yeah. an option. Yeah, I mean, it's just not
0: exactly, and that it presents a challenge, but it's also a great thing. I, I had a uh, you know Tim Urban, who writes the site Wait But Why. He does mm-hmm. these really great, simple little diagrams and cartoon diagrams, and he's done one that a lot of people have used. That basically is like taking your life and mapping it out as a, each week as a series of boxes. It's yeah. like a visual diagram to see this is like how much time you have. And oh
1: my god, that's depressing. It, well, <laughs> I know. I'll do that later. Well, and but it, have an existential crisis. Well,
0: it's funny because it helps put a lot in perspective and. I thought about that when I had a a cousin of mine who posted something on Facebook, and she had mentioned that uh, she'd had a daughter that had just turned eighteen and -hmm. and everything, and she had shared some pictures of when she was nine, and she Mm -hmm. realized when she was nine that she was like halfway through her time with that that child. Yeah, you know, like don't think about it that way. But no, I do. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of us, you know, we think about, oh God, we're it's a grind. We're trying to. I'm them just trying to get through. We're trying to get through it, but yeah. then all of a sudden, there's a day that's going to come. You're not going to yeah. have much time left with this person. Yeah. So, uh,
1: well, and I I do think about that kind of stuff a lot. I had um, I, we've talked about this, but I, I had a partner in the with three partners in the design co-op, um, and all of us were really good friends and had sole proprietor architecture firms. We kept our own brands. We got shared staff and shared offices, and one of our partners died suddenly mm. at 42 with mm. A little kid mm. and
2: <laughs> mm.
1: tw- that was 2019 uh that was october of t- 2019 and in april of 2021 so 18 months later um i have a cousin that i absolutely adore just like the most fun person in any room ever um who went to sleep and didn't wake up at 45 mm. three kids and so i do have this I have, right, as we do the weeks, I'm like, that. that's assuming we live to our 70s. exactly. And so I think I do have this very new kind of life philosophy, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. that is also just like, this could all be so short. And so is this the work that we want to be doing today? And mm-hmm. is this the thing that we want to be doing today? And I think it helps filter and make, make really realistic as we look at those weeks, like, do I want to be working with this client who makes me miserable? And like, I'm for sure much faster to fire clients now. Like it's a three strike rule. And the third time that we're like, this is making me miserable. We, we fire you and help you find another architect because life is too short to be Mm -hmm. doing, to be miserable at work every day. Life is too short to be miserable at home every day. And so I think that like that realistic viewpoint of this is the only one of these that we get to do. And that's both in terms of impact and that's in terms of learning and that's in terms of relationships and Mm. growth and, you know, all of these different things that we really have to think about, you know, people and life as being not just about getting through today.
2: Yeah.
1: And. You know, I love hearing too about how how housing made it possible for you guys to live a lifestyle that mm-hmm. I'm sure is going to feel so special mm-hmm. for the rest of the weeks, yeah. right? Um, and that I think is one of the things that we try to always return all of these kind of like policy wonky and like housing type conversations back to people. Yeah. Because what we're building is the framework for people to live in, to live yeah. their lives, to have their kids, right? Yeah to fall in love, mm. um, you know, to watch someone they love die. Like we're building the environment and the framework for life, but it's, it's about life and it's about people. Yeah. And so, you know, the more that we can legalize housing and give people the flexibility to stay at home, if they want to stay at home, to take a new job because the one that they're in right now makes them miserable um, to move in with a roommate that they love, that they get to hang out and have deep conversations late at night with, right? Mm-hmm. Like the more that we can legalize life, the better we're doing. Yeah. We're just, we're living in this environment where we have this very narrow, definition of right we're building housing for nuclear families that don't exist anymore in yeah. The majority yeah and so we're limiting people's ability to create these relationships to make choices that make sense for them financially we are limiting people's lives and they don't get to get those back it, it can't take us 40 years to fix this because we've lost an entire generation of lives
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so that's this work feels so deep to me because that's the lens that Mm -hmm. I think I view it through.
0: Yeah. That's beautifully said.
1: You guys can't see that I'm just like a sobbing mess over That's here. That's okay. It's
0: it's uh, you know, congratulations. You're the first person who's cried on the podcast.
2: <laughs>
1: that is super in in on brand. But, uh, you know, it might not be the last time I'll cry on a podcast. I think this is the first time I've cried on for sure a podcast.
0: Well, it's uh it's great and First I, but not last. And, and I I take every everything you said um and agree with it. I just, you know, I it's funny because I, you know, we have these conversations at CNU and other places and with planners and everything about policy sounds so wonky and abstract. And yeah. I have I have always tried to like when I have been pushing house hacking for people, I I really just try to tell my personal story. Here's how it's actually benefited my life. I love it. You know, and because when I was thirty years old I, I owned and lived in a triplex. Yeah. And uh, so I had income to pay the mortgage. Yeah. So then I I had a cushion where I could go start my own business. Yes. And the first year, un- unlike you, <laughs> I was not prepared <laughs> very well to start a business. And the first year was brutally hard. Yeah, totally. Uh, and made very very little money. Uh, yeah. But uh, because I had prepared myself with the house hack situation, yeah. and I basically had no housing expense. Yeah. I had a way to get through it.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, and and then similarly with our with having kids and everything else. So to me, these things are not like abstract; they're they're very tangible. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. Well, so. that's you know, I've, I'll uh, I'll pitch to you then that maybe next year. I, I was talking with Ivy and um, Ivy Van, who's from New mm-hmm. Hampshire, and Tom Emerson, who's from Maine. Yeah, I've had two separate conversations at the CNU about doing a session that is we're we're branding it supportive housing right mm-hmm. and so um kind of the those three examples to add to yours and i think i think you've you've fully encapsulated them you know the, <laughs> the that fourth version of that which is how housing can add to your life and your mm-hmm. trajectory and so you know we're talking about high talking with Ivy about sort of the idea that she took her house and cut mm-hmm. it up into apartments, right? She, yeah. ha- she has four kids. They had this big house in New England that they needed for mm-hmm. that number of decades, right? And now they don't. And so they've, they've cut it up into apartments. Yeah. She now has income. She also could have a caretaker at some point, you know, 30 right. years down the line, move into one of those apartments and be, yeah. be in the house with them. Um, Tom was talking about, you know, same thing. Ha- has, has all these kids who now are grown up and out of the house. Um, has one... Um, you know, I think daughter uh, who lives at home still is, is going to need more supportive care kind of long-term. And so they've figured out how to cut up ADUs on the property so that they'll be able to, they can be in one unit, she can be in one unit, yeah. and then they can have either income producing in the last unit. When they get to the point that somebody needs more help, they can have somebody that's doing that in a unit that they're providing that housing as one of the core pieces um, of that, uh, you know, salary right. and so how beautiful that again that that housing ability and legalizing we're legalizing life here right like that mm-hmm. they they can get what they need because they can do that with housing
2: yeah
1: um my kind of house hack version is i um i'm gonna i was in a really big house, sold a big historic project, Mm -hmm. um, sold that moved into, you know, again, I'm I'm jumping A to D here. I didn't go to a middle ground. (laughs) I sold my like, you know, 5,000 square foot big historic house. And when, you know, when I had both kids suddenly by myself, moved into a two bedroom, one bathroom right around the Mm -hmm. corner. Um, It's very small and the kids sharing a room has not worked. So I've got a baby sleeping in the living room with no (laughs) door. And, you know, you can't come in the front door past 7 p.m. and everybody has to talk quietly. Um, That's not working great either. So I have another big historic project that we've been working on that has all of these bedrooms and an attached ADU. Uh, We've carved an attached ADU into it. Um, and I'm going to move in in a few months and I'm going to move in with a couple of the college girls that help with the kids. And Mm -hmm. that is going to give me an ability to like take a shower without two kids yelling in the bathroom, you know, at me the whole time. And, and it's going to really make a flexibility possible and it's going to give them a safe and free how, you know, housing situation. And so we do not meet the family definition. We will be breaking the law the day that we move in. And also, (laughs) Um, you know, those are the kinds of laws that keep us from being able to do the thing that makes sense for us right now. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those, you know, ADUs that require owner occupancy just totally ignores the way that we live and change and grow, right? Like, okay, Mm -hmm. you have a family member in that ADU now, but like, if you move your 80 year old mom in, she's not going to be there for 60 years. Right. So what happens to that ADU next, you know, in 10 years yeah. and what <clears throat> happens to that ADU five years after that when you get a really cool job offer in europe for a year and you yeah. want to be able to rent the house does it just sit empty the entire time you're gone because there's a one-year period you know or a 10-year period or how you know we're yeah. building these units that are hopefully going to be there 100 years how do we look at them as being able to grow and change and flex with us and how do we just legalize that
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah um I, I feel like we could probably go on for hours on this. There, there's a lot to, a lot more to dig into. I do want to, uh, I'm a little concerned we're going to start getting people coming in the room here. So, but I do want to, I want to talk a little bit about um, Northwest Arkansas oh, yeah. and your uh, presence there. Uh, it's only like three hour, three and a half hours from Kansas City. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we talked about the other day, I love the region. It's, it's pretty, it's incredible how much it's growing and changing. I, talk about like what your experience has been like living there. Do you feel like, you're an evangelist for the area. Do you, I mean, what do you, how do you feel about as that as a place that you would stick around for a long time?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've made the joke several times. I, I speak nationally for Inc Deb and um, so I'm, I'm out of Arkansas a decent amount and I have a regular joke that I tell um, that is that the worst part of living in Arkansas is telling people that you live in Arkansas <laughs> uh, because there's just this reaction when you say that in Connecticut, <laughs> that isn't
2: great. Yeah.
1: Um, and also, you know, I, I don't fully evangelize just because I don't want that many people to know about it, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's great. It was accidental that I ended up there. I would not have been able to run this kind of business or have this kind of life in a different, bigger market. I would probably be working for, you know, some big firm, mm-hmm. um, which would be fine and a lot less flexible. Um, but, you know, as a region, it is, I, I think I am an accurate um, both you know, evangelists for it and also uh, have a lot of criticism for it that Mm -hmm. I think is valid. It is, it's sort of, we joke it's like a Disneyland economy because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the top, the, the Fortune One company in the in the country, um, pro- maybe the biggest company in the world, um, is headquartered there, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, in a town of 50,000 people. And right. so there's an enormous amount of resources and wealth that are coming from other communities that are then being plugged into our community. And right. so there is an enormous amount of spend that happens there, making it a lovely place to live that is complicated sometimes.
2: Yeah. But yeah. it's a
1: beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful geography. It is yeah. a wonderful set of people. There are incredible things happening there. Yeah. And, you know, nothing's perfect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think most people who've never been are, are really not aware of how gorgeous an area it is. And <laughs> now that it's grown so much, it has a lot of the urban amenities that you'd expect in a bigger city, yeah. bigger area. Yeah. So. We've
1: got world-class art museums and just like yeah. a stunning James Beard award-winning restaurants yeah. left and right. And yeah. yeah.
0: But you probably don't want too many people to know that.
1: it. Nah, so. man. Don't, <laughs> don't come. It's awful.
0: All right, we uh, We've got people rolling in here, so I think we'll okay. wrap up here. But Allie, we'll this have was to so fun. we'll have to do this again. And okay. like I said before, we've got to figure out a way to do like a shuttle back and forth between KC and Northwest Arkansas and some of our some of our peeps in both those locations. I'm so, here for it. All right,
1: thanks so much, Kevin.
0: Thanks, Allie.